Hey, welcome to Monday Night School. And if you listen to yesterday's Every Night's a School Night, which I don't expect you to have, you know, I, I, I know that this show is, it's unadvertised, it, there's an overwhelming amount of material, and you might just not find it that interesting. But I feel compelled to do it. Um... But anyway, if you listened to yesterday's episode, you'd know that I, you know, I talked about the idea of reading material on here. You know, reading. I, I'm hesitant to read full passages, certainly not full poems. But I do want to incorporate more of that into this show. I do want to incorporate bits and pieces of written material that I feel is worth sharing. And you know, right now I am reading this Teachings of the Buddha book, and it's a time where. This is, to me, this is more relevant than ever right now. These sorts of ideas, they're always relevant, and actually I wouldn't say that there's any time where spiritual ideas and spiritual development is any more or less relevant. I don't think there's any time where that scale tips one way or the other. Yeah, there are times where you personally are going through you know, certain experiences that might force you to, you might be in more of an animal state where you're thinking purely about how am I going to get food? Where am I going to sleep? But for the most part, you know, if, you know, depending on your situation, but for the most part, on a, on a, on a larger scale, I don't feel that there's ever a time where these sorts of ideas are more or less relevant. I feel that they are consistent, and often they were developed with that in mind. Or even if they weren't developed with that in mind, they were developed in response to a variety, the full range of circumstances that a human life can go through and be in. And it's been interesting to watch people I know, though, both personally as well as, I guess, what you might call public figures, and especially people that are spiritually focused. And in some cases, I've seen where people have what is normally sort of an objective equanimous, I don't even know how to say that, people who generally, you know, I, I would say try to cultivate equanimity have directed all of their spiritual efforts to very specific political activities, which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not telling them not to do that. I certainly, I'm, I'm no master of anything. You know, I wouldn't, I would never tell someone where to direct their energy or their focus. And I think a lot of people are afraid of being negligent. Or there's the term. I can't even think of it offhand. Can't even think of the term I'm trying to refer to. Oh, spiritual bypassing. It's where you avoid focusing on or dealing with very serious worldly events, or even events in your personal life, but, um, you know, things going on in the world. You avoid those, or you come up with spiritual justifications for them so that you can avoid dealing with them or thinking about them in ways that are uncomfortable. And one example of that is... You know, I'd say the most obvious example would be when someone says, oh, that's just their karma. Oh, those people starving to death and nobody can do nothing about it. Those people who are, oh, those people who are in a war-torn third world country 
and they're starving to death, and they don't know if someone's going to come with a machine gun tomorrow. It's just their karma from a past life. You know, that's the sort of justification somebody can come up with to try to reconcile the fact that some people are living in absolute horror. And there are obviously issues with that way of thinking. I think anytime you're justifying something, first of all, but I mean, it can easily just be being purposely ignorant, being, you know, it's kind of deceiving yourself in a way, you know, because you're just kind of thinking, oh, well, I'm going to focus on this bigger picture that doesn't involve this human life, and it actually reduces the day-to-day priorities of this human life to, to nil, and but at the same time i think you can also go you can overcorrect too and you might not even realize your spiritual bypass might not even be a phrase in your lexicon but you still are sort of afraid of doing that or you're just so caught up in in an emotional reaction to something that's going on that you've just invested wholeheartedly in that And people have this idea, too. I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, so I I will never speak as a Buddhist. Although I'm, you know, I would say my view of the world is very much, has become very informed by Buddhism, both just, it was just a natural process for me, as well as deliberately seeking out certain material, too. You know, it's been a little bit of both. Uh, but you know, I, I you know we tend to think of Buddhism as a purely left wing phenomenon. We tend to, how could you be a Buddhist and not vote Democrat? How could you be a Buddhist and not? Oh, so you read books about Buddhism, but you you're not you're a Republican. You know uh, that's hard. I, I don't think somebody can really wrap their brain around that idea. A boot a Republican Buddhist, a Buddhist Republican. But I always, it's always worth reminding people, you know, this was a moment for me where reading about, in, you know, in South Korea decades ago, the rival monasteries, one monastery paying thugs to throw Molotov cocktails into the rival monastery's windows. These monasteries at, at vi- in violent warfare with each other in South Korea. And th- that was political. It was because they had different political interests. It wasn't because they disagreed over an interpretation of something the Buddhists said that was translated into Korean. You know, it's not that they were disagreeing over that, although that might have played a role. Because when people are at odds with each other, they'll find any excuse to be at odds. But at its heart, there's something that has nothing to do with Buddhism when you have rival monasteries throwing Molotov cocktails at each other's buildings, you know, there's something, even though they might find every reason to split every hair they can, which is a funny thing to think about, monks splitting hairs, considering they got none, um, but, but you know, even though it, it might end up playing out where every single little thing ends up being a source of conflict, at its heart there's really something that has nothing to do with spirituality, philosophy, any kind of teaching. It's going to be probably political in nature, because we can see where that plays out even with the U.S. political parties, where these people, a lot of these people live very similar lives and have similar values, but because of some disagreements on one front, 
it, it creates this divide where you end up disagreeing on every front, even though you, at the end of the day, you live similar lives in a similar place at the same time in history, in the same little corner of the world. Uh, so you can see where, you know, just political conflict, it, it really corrupts everything, and it really divides people wholly in every possible way to the point where monks are throwing Molotov cocktails. And I, I'll just never get over that. I'll never get over reading about that. And I laughed. I laughed when I read that about these monks. <laughs> you know? It's just, and of course, you know. And we have the noble side of that, too. I mean, there's nothing noble about that. But, you know, there's the, the monks in... Was it Tibet? I mean, it was somewhere... It was somewhere uh, who trained in self-defense to fight off Muslim invaders many centuries ago, eons ago. And I think that was more noble. I think that's a little different than throwing Molotov cocktails into a rival monastery because of a political disagreement. This was just, we want to defend our, our place because that is a dilemma. When you get into this stuff, it is very easy to be passive, and that kind of goes back to what I'm saying about spiritual bypass, where it's very easy to kind of look after yourself, and if all of your needs are met, to then become passive about the needs of others or these dilemmas in the world. But I think it's easy to go too far the other way, too, and to sort of be like, oh, well, because well, I, th I think that some people get into this stuff for comfort. And it's sort of that follow your bliss pop spirituality of the West where it's like I meditate so that I can uh, just feel that moment of sheer bliss. Oh, it's just, it's that Zen moment of bliss. It's almost this pleasure. You're almost seeking this pleasure. And, and not that you should deny pleasure if you feel it. But... I think that's why people also can so easily abandon a discipline, or maybe they never really had it. Maybe it never really was a discipline. Maybe it was always just something to make themselves feel better, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I think it's good to know what, what your intent is in being interested in this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, part of that's what led you to it. You know, for some people, it just feels like there was... N you just, it just, you don't feel like you even made a decision. And that's kind of how I feel, is I don't feel that I ever really made a decision. I mean, obviously, I, I was interested in certain things. I've made a lot of decisions as far as what I'm interested in goes, you know, pursuing those interests. But it's, it's one of those things, though, where in many ways it doesn't really feel like you ever had a choice, despite having so many choices, it's just one choice, one option was illuminated, or it came to you in addition to you heading toward it. Uh, but I think, it, you know, and I don't know, I don't want to make this a judgment of anyone else, but I've just seen where, you know, you see where witches right now, I've seen some people making fun of this, but I've also seen people I know who, who are kind of, they're into that, you know, modern, like I would call it pop witchiness. There's that pop witchiness that's popular among millennial women, um, a whole a whole range of women these days. And I, I like that. You know, I, I, I think it's... I prefer that. I prefer that sort of pop witchiness 
over this like diehard dry science worship. Not that I have any problem with the scientific process, as I've explained before, but you know, it's just I, I pr- I'd much prefer somebody who's kind of getting out there a little bit than I would somebody who's just like, you know, devoted themselves entirely to the church of science. But that pop witchiness, too, it is very politicized. And again, you're not going to find very many Republican witches. I mean, they exist, but they're not the ones playing this game where it's like, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a witchy girl. You know, you're not going to hear them saying that. I think Republican witches are a lot more dangerous and potent. Maybe not dangerous, but just uh, potent than these like kind of lefty, socially influenced young witch girls, not to take anything away from their power, because they have it too. <laughs> Republican Buddhists and Republican witches. You know, but, uh, you know, I've just seen where a lot of this energy is, a lot of people who have this sort of, you know, modern, basically non-orthodox, unorthodox spiritual focus where it's it's become heavily, heavily politicized. And yeah, I think it's good that people aren't thinking, oh, hey, you know, it's karma. I can be passive. I shouldn't have any opinions at all, even though I say that shit all the time myself. But, you know, it's I think it's good that people want to engage and use their focus for something. But it's almost like that something has gone completely by the wayside. And they seem to have been overtaken. They're in the grip of... Not just their own emotions, but all these emotions going on around them, which for me is one of the one of the reasons this stuff is attractive and continues to be so attractive to me is that it helps you deal with not just your own emotions, but it really helps you handle get a handle on those external things, those external forces, the heaviest of which is often other people's emotions, because what makes us react? It's other people's reactions. It's not just their actions, but they are, it's just, I mean, it goes back to the Buddhist idea of, you know, dependent origination, where it's like nothing, nothing is not influenced by something else. You know, nothing, nothing in the universe is not reacting to something else, and it's hard to actually pinpoint a single action that isn't a reaction. Um, and that plays into, you know, Buddhist cosmology, the, the creation of everything, where we can't really pinpoint the creation because everything was seemingly responding to another movement. Every movement was responding to another movement. Do I believe, you know, do I, I wouldn't know how, I wouldn't know how things began. It seems like something had to start somewhere, but, uh, you know, everything is reacting to something, and you are are continually reacting to things. You know, how many of your actions are an actual action? How many of your how many of your creations? How many of your cre- how much of your creative energy is actually truly creative? Is it coming out of some vacuum, or is it a response? Even if it's not a direct response, it's you're still responding to something in most cases. And so what I see from people on the spiritual front right now is I see a lot of people caught up in 
pure response, pure reaction, and it's overtaken some of their discipline. And I'm not judging that. I'm not saying they should do something else. But I'm trying to resist the temptation to do that, to fall into that, because it would be very easy for a perceived change in the world. Because as I said, 2020 is another year. And the things that were relevant, the disciplines that were relevant, the ideas that were relevant a year ago, five years ago, they're consistent. Those are consistent, and they don't blow in the wind. It doesn't mean that, you know, circumstances don't change, and they, you know, and they, they re, they're impacted by that, too, because those things, too, are... They're moving and being moved by other things, I guess would be a way to put it. But I do want to get into this passage that I feel is helpful right now. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I thought about reading the whole thing, not going to. But the passage is called The Abandoning of Sorrow. And it, Buddha was addressing the monks in Jetta Grove, and he said... Monks, I say that the elimination of the causes of sorrow is for one who knows and sees wisely, not for one who does not know and see wisely. Monks, there are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by not paying attention to them. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by restraining. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by using. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by enduring. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by removing. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by developing. And the passage, it goes into each one of those, you know, removing, abandoning, um, developing, uh, or restraining. You know, it goes into each one of those individually and gives examples. And I don't, I don't want to sit here and read each description of those, but I do want to comment on my own, because each of those is important to my own discipline. It's important to my own discipline. You know, this show is very much preach what you need. So whether these apply to you or or don't apply to you, and I, I can't tell anybody. I can't tell anybody what their experience is, what their life is like, uh, although I think these are universal. And I think that's why these were developed in documented as part of a, a spiritual philosophy, as, as a religion. But starting with the, the first one, it's pretty obvious, you know, abandoning sorrow by not paying attention to the causes of that sorrow. That's a pretty obvious one, and it's one you have to learn, and you have to recognize that in yourself when you notice yourself looking at things because they upset you. And you may not feel that you have a choice. You may not recognize that you have a choice, especially when... Uh, let's just go with the, the obvious example in the modern day, where it's like you have this option of looking at something in your hand. You have this little phone, this little supercomputer in your hand that can show you everything going on in the world. And the way that our negativity bias influences everything means that a lot of what you're going to see is going to be stuff that upsets you. 
even if it doesn't piss you off on this tribal political level, which there's plenty of that going around in that little supercomputer, but even if it's not something that upsets you as as a tribe member of some kind, it, it could just be something just sad, something about someone's pet, something about just some normal, everyday tragedy that just brings you down a little. But it could also be something that's rude. It could be, you know, you're going to read... I'm not even going to name the news organizations, but you are reading something from a news organization that you know is... I mean, you might not know it, but it's tailor-made to infuriate you, and not just infuriate you on a basic human level, but infuriate you in such a way that you come out going, I hate Donald You know, it's, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or for that matter, the, the other way around, you know, where it's just like, I hate this, this Democrat, you know, it's like something that makes you react that way. And so by simply not paying attention to it. But it's not just that. It's kind of what I was talking about with true crime as well, where I've realized, especially since I don't read about serial killers like I used to, and I don't read about these horrific crimes at all, really. It's only, it's very rare now. And when I do, I also recognize that it kind of, I get infected with a low-grade virus when I pay too much attention to that stuff. It's a low-grade mind virus. And uh, as a result, I can choose to not pay attention to it, even though it's interesting, even though I feel that I have a good head on my shoulders when I approach that stuff, even though I feel that I have a balanced perspective and I'm not entertaining myself with it and I'm not overindulging in it, it's still simply paying too much attention to dark subject matter colors your worldview. And it makes it more gray and, and more dim. It, maybe it drains the color from your worldview, depending on what it is, but that's a good example. So simply paying attention, and it, sound, it sounds so obvious, like, oh, you know, if I, if, I pay, if I stop paying attention to things that cause me to feel sorrow, I will feel less sorrow. But I think the hard part of that is you don't even realize how much control you have over what you pay attention to. And our negativity bias... Influences, influences us to pay more attention to those things that bring us down. Because it's one thing if it's something in your environment. Because you can see on an evolutionary level why paying attention to bad things is good for survival. Because you want to be aware of what's going on in your environment. But as your environment has become this psychotechnological landscape that stretches across the entire globe and includes every single person's perspective right or wrong, you can see where paying attention to bad things is a whole different story. You're not huddled in a, a hut only concerned with the bear who's been terrorizing your village. You know, that bear has turned into a weird digital constellation that exists only in your mind. And so obsessing over it is only going to cause you sorrow that you don't need to experience and you can't do anything about it. I think that should be a good rule of thumb, is like, you know, what can you do something about? Uh, when you, when you're, if you're paying attention to something, it should be something that you can 
interact with in some sort of constructive way. And if you can't, you should be able to let go of that and not pay attention to it. So that's, an, that's a, a crucial one, especially in the information age, especially in the technological age. Because I think that's what fries a lot of people's brains, is they're paying attention to things that cause them sorrow, and they don't even realize it's an option to not pay attention to those things. And again, to get into the spiritual bypass thing, it's not ignoring it. It's not pretending it doesn't exist. But it's not absorbing it either, if you don't have to absorb it. And there will be times, and I mean, that's the thing too, it's not like you won't ever pay attention to these things. But my, by making it a discipline, by being conscious of it, you limit the influence that it has on you. And then when you have to pay attention, it'll be, it'll be more important. You'll have more energy to deal with and process it than you would if you were just absorbing this stuff all the time, which is what people are doing. And it's why people are just fried. They're fried. Um. So that one's pretty obvious, though. Abandon, you know, abandoning the causes of sorrow by not paying attention to them. Uh, the next one is restraining. Abandoning the causes of sorrow by restraining. Well, you know, restraint, we think of that as very forceful. Restraint sounds very forceful. We think it's like bondage. And you can always go too far with restraint. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, restraint is, that's, it's, that's where discipline really comes in. Because it, it is, by its nature, you know, taking control. Um, let me think about this one for a second. The way that, uh, the, way that the, the passage puts it is, is being lost in sense experience. And, uh, and, 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 is, and, learns how to not want. Because, you know, I have my own take on what restraint is. And, you know, restraint, you know, it, you can restrain yourself from paying attention. So, of course, all of these points bleed into each other, uh, you know, where you, know, you can use restraint to not pay attention. But it doesn't have to be that forceful. But restraint, it's, it's not going for the thing. I mean, I like that they refer to sense experience, which is taste, smell, sight. We know what the senses are. Uh, but restraining yourself from giving in to your senses is important. And it does take restraint. It takes restraint when you have so many options available. You have so many things you could eat. You have so many things you could watch. You have so many things you can consume, including information. And so you do have to restrain yourself from it. And again, it's one of those things you might not realize that you can even do, but the more you do it, the better you get at it, and the more you see... Options. I mean, a great example is when you just keep going to the cupboard to grab another handful of chips. You go into the cupboard to grab another handful of chippies for your binge watching. You know, it's that kind of thing. It's because when you're sitting there and you're binge watching, it's very easy to say one more episode, one more episode. You know, it's one. It's very easy to do that, and when you have that moment where net Netflix tells you next, you want to click next, and it starts counting down even. So it's even a passive thing where you can just sit there and it starts counting down. I, I haven't had Netflix for a while, but from what I remember, it starts counting down and it'll, it will autoplay the next episode. 
I've definitely seen that where things will autoplay the next episode, or if you don't want to wait 10 seconds, you can click next and start watching it now, now. And then you go up to the cupboard and you get another handful of chippies, you get another handful of chips to go with your binge watching, or maybe another bag, maybe a whole other bag. It might not be just a handful of chips. That Just eating a handful of chips like once every hour, that's probably restraint. For me, that when if I'm if I'm in a mode where I'm eating bad, that's restraint. Is eating just a handful of chips an hour, uh, but uh, you know, restraint. That's that's a very physical, obvious way that you can restrain yourself. But you realize that you're making a decision every time you do that. But so often with our bad decisions, we don't think we're making a decision. We tend to think of decisions as something, oh, I'm deciding to do something good. But with our bad decisions, we tend to not realize the moment. We tend to not recognize the moment of decision when it's a bad decision, and we just do it. It's, we think of it as impulsive. But there is still a decision being made. You're just so cloudy that you're not recognizing that moment. You're not recognizing that instant where you can make that decision. Probably because you don't want to recognize it. You don't want to recognize that you have choice in the matter, which is why when people make decision, bad decisions, they often don't take responsibility. They often act like they didn't have a choice. Cause, and they might not remember that choice. It might not be deliberate deception. They just might not remember that choice. So, you know, what is restraint? I mean, beyond the sort of like bondage sound of that, Restraint is just making a decision. It's making a choice to not do something. And that will often alleviate a lot of sorrow. That was a big one for me, you know, when, when I realized how many choices I was actually making, how much and how, you know, the range of options that I had in any given moment. And one of those options is to do nothing. But, you know, that that was a very big moment for me is just realizing, oh, like all these things I've been doing that make me feel like shit, that occasionally make other people feel like shit, these were all decisions I was making that I didn't realize were decisions. And in realizing that you have choice, you learn restraint. And the more that you make those choices, the more your the more your range of motion increases. And if you want to do shitty things, you still can. But you at least recognize that you have a choice in the matter. Um, but uh, I, I like that it refers to it as being lost in sense experience, because that's sort of the cloudiness. Being lost in sense experience, I believe, is what causes a lot of that cloudiness. It's, again, you're just reacting. You're just reacting, but you're not deliberating. The one that, here's here's an interesting one. The one that says abandoning the causes of sorrow by using. You know, it sounds like what like shooting up, using drugs. How could you abandon the causes of sorrow by using? Um, no, it doesn't refer to that. It's not using in that sense. Uh, but it's it's referring again to you know all the all of these parallel and play into each other. But uh, this is referring to using food and nourishment not for amusement, intoxication, the sake of physical beauty or attractiveness, but for endurance and the continuance of this body and to end discomfort and assist in the holy life. So this is an important one. 
this is this is it's again a choice. It's being deliberate about your consumption and using means this isn't using means not starving yourself. Using means eating when you're hungry. It means eating healthy. It means eating stuff that you know is going to benefit your body and uh, benefit your mind, for that matter, too. It's being deliberate in the choices you make. In the same way that res- it's sort of the opposite of restraint, except not opposite, but it's it's sort of the other end of the spectrum on that, where with restraint, you're choosing to not indulge and certainly not overindulge. But using, the idea of abandoning sorrow, the causes of sorrow through using, what that is, is it's not restraining yourself from taking things in. It's choosing to take things in, but being very deliberate about what those things are and knowing what they are doing. Because if you are taking something in, it should have a purpose, even if it is pleasure. Because, you know, I don't think, I mean, the whole idea of the middle path is that you don't deny yourself pleasure entirely. You're not, you don't have to be an ascetic. You don't have to be Saint Simeon on living on top of a pillar and living off of you know breadcrumbs. Although that sounds really cool. I like the idea of those guys who lived on top of pillars. And they were real. They lived on a tiny platform on top of pillars in the desert and just stretched and prayed and meditated and ate breadcrumbs. Um, but you don't have to be that. You can you can enjoy things and that, but you should know that you are enjoying it because that's one of the things about overindulgence, is you often stop enjoying the thing. Like I had a girlfriend and we used to smoke weed, and her big thing was she would love to have ice cream when she was stoned, as any sane person would. But I remember she used to say, "I can't even taste it anymore," and she would keep eating it. And I mean, that's. I shouldn't even use her as an example because, I mean, that's my whole thing entirely. When I'm binge eating, I don't even taste it anymore. I don't even taste it. I don't even know what I'm getting. It's just, it's like this physical thing. It's just this physical, mechanical action that isn't good for me, and I keep doing it. Uh, so it's, you know, abandoning the, abandoning the causes of sorrow by using would be indulging, but indulging in a, in a way that's very deliberate with a very conscious outcome. You know, I'm eating this, you know, grilled chicken and kale lunch because I know that this is going to benefit me. This is going to benefit my health. And it might have been better. I, I, I might rather be eating chicken tikka masala. I might rather be having chicken tikka masala with a donut but you know it's it's being deliberate, and when you do want that chicken tikka masala with a donut, with a with a side of donuts, you have that because it's going to make you feel good. It's a, it's a reward. It's it's pleasure. You know, it's not like again, you're not denying yourself pleasure, but you know that you're rewarding yourself. You know that you're pleasuring yourself. You know that you're pleasuring yourself. Uh, you know, you just you know it. So it, it's really being conscious of what you are using and why. And that, and that, there's a whole spectrum of that because you know it's it's the same thing for Saint Simeon on his pillar, eating just bread donated by locals. Otherwise, he'll starve. You know, they gave him I think goat's milk and and just bread, and he lived off of that. 
but he he knew why. He knew why he was denying himself lavish meals. You know, he knew why he was doing that, and he knew why he was living on a pillar. Um, but uh, so it's it's that idea where it goes. In, but it's also if you do indulge, you know, you know why too, and you should enjoy it. Because I think the worst of all, and I know I've used this example a lot, but it's the person in an office who, that coworker who's trying to win friends, brings in two boxes of donuts, and there's that person who feels guilty and broadcasts their guilt as they cut off a little piece of donut with a plastic serrated knife. And it's like, if you're going to indulge, just do it and know why you're doing it. Because having a donut at your boring-ass job is going to make you feel excited. So eat it. You know, don't torture yourself by eating it piecemeal, one little serrated knife nugget at a time. Um, so it's it's really, using is really just knowing why you're doing what you're doing, knowing why you're indulging in what you're in, indulging in. Not that you have to constantly, not, not that you have to destroy yourself by thinking about that and obsessing about it all the time. But all of these things, you know, because this stuff can make you think, oh, I'd be miserable if I analyzed every little action I did all the time. If I always thought about why I'm doing what I'm doing, how I'm doing it and why. But the reality is the more you do this stuff, the more it becomes part of your subconscious, the more it becomes part of your just makeup. And you no longer have to think this way. It's like anything. It's anything that you do often enough and becomes second nature. But to start out with, you do have to think about it more. You do have to be conscious of it before it can become part of your subconscious. And that's the most beautiful thing, you know, about all this is when something that you had to think about in order in order to do just becomes part of you. It becomes part of your nature as it enters the subconscious. And, uh, and you know, part of that, though, using, I, I want to, I imagine this was going to be a really short episode, but we're going on here. But, uh... You know, with using too, it's it's recognizing your own comfort. It's valuing your own comfort. Again, you don't have, you don't have to be Saint Simeon starving yourself on top of a pillar in the direct sunlight. You don't have to do that. You can consider your own comfort, and that's important. Comfort is important. I love comfort. It's eating when you're hungry and not just letting your stomach rumble all day just to torture yourself. Um. And the same goes for, you know, being warm, being cold, you know, the element, you know, not, you don't want to be covered in bugs, you know, you don't want to be covered in, you don't want the elements to ruin your life and torture you. So it's the same for, you know, just your physical comfort as well. Using, you know why you're using a roof to protect you from the direct sun and the rain and the elements. You know, it's, it's again, using applies to anything that you could potentially use. It's not just consumption, but it's also putting anything to use. I mean, it's like if you chop a tree down and you're building your own house, you know why you're using that. And so it, and the, other, the byproduct of all this is that you'll waste less. You know, if you know why you're buying a certain thing you know you're going to put it to use. And if you don't, you know, you don't. We don't always use everything. We're not perfect. But you at least have a better sense of what purpose this thing is going to serve for you. But, uh, 
it's you know medicine too. You know, it's medicine as well. You know, it's it's using something with the the full knowledge of what it's supposed to do for you, and it's not necessarily recreation. And if you're using it for recreation, that's fun too. But don't lie to yourself. I mean, I knew some people back before weed was legal here. There were some people with medical prescriptions who I knew them, and they lied about why they were smoking weed. They weren't people who needed weed for medicinal reasons, but they kind of got sucked into this idea because they were... Because the thing is, if you even tell a casual lie, you will start to behave in a way that supports that lie. Because we don't like feeling cognitive dissonance. So if you lied about having a medical ailment so that you could smoke pot, even though you've always smoked pot for purely recreational reasons... You might start justifying it. You might come up with some sort of justification where you're like, well, actually, I do have... Actually, I do have a runny nose that only gets cleared up when I smoke weed. And that's a true story. I know of a guy who... uh, He was a a friend of a guy that I bought weed from once. (laughs) So... You know, take that how you will. But anyway, he was a construction worker who would have just a continually runny nose. And he got, he, he went to one of those doctors who they existed for a while and they would just pretty much guarantee write you a prescription for a medicinal weed, uh, for medicinal weed. And this guy, his, weed cleared up his sinuses or something, which you think smoking something wouldn't do. But, you know, when you do that, though, you might start believing it. When, even when you tell a soft lie, you might start believing it. And so, you know, if you're using something for recreational purposes, if you just like getting high, you know, you should just do that. But it's funny when people start to kind of, they tell a lie to justify doing something, and then they start behaving themselves in accordance with the lie. Because you don't want to, because nobody wants to, you know, Nobody wants to actually, very few people, let's say, want to actually believe they're lying. So you'll end up coming up with a way of justifying it or dancing around the lie that you made. Um, On to the next one. I feel like I'm reading the Ten Commandments here. The Ten Commandments of Abandoning Sorrow, although I don't think there's ten. This is a good one. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by enduring. This is, you know, on one hand, emotional endurance, not responding and reacting, even when you are completely tempted. This is about temptation. Endurance is largely about temptation. Physical endurance, you know, you're tempted to stop, and sometimes you have to. Sometimes you're, I mean, your endurance can run out. It's not like everybody's endurance is infinite. But you can strengthen your endurance. You can build on your endurance, both physical and mental and spiritual. And so endurance, you, you, know, you, you continue to push yourself, and you find opportunities to do it in your own time so that when you are forced to do it, when you're forced to endure, it's easier, it's more natural. Because it's very difficult to, to gain endurance when it's always in response to a temptation. Like, if you develop endurance only when... like. If, if, you, if you try to develop endurance only when your girlfriend's screaming at you, it's going to be hard. Because you're not going to have the endurance to begin with, and so you're going to want to respond and react, and you're going to feel threatened. Uh, so it's like that's not a good way to build endurance. But you can do it. I mean, all the, th- the, the, the thing about endurance is that 
it only comes through pushing yourself. And part of that is, you know, let's go back to the paying attention one where it's like you abandon the causes of sorrow by not paying attention to things that will cause you sorrow. Well, in order to build up endurance, you do have to pay attention to a certain number of things that could potentially cause you sorrow. And that's actually a a little thing I do. I actually will deliberately look at things sometimes that I know will piss me off and tell myself and use restraint. I mean, you can use all of these at the same time. I will pay attention to things, but use restraint to not get upset. Or if I feel upset, to keep it at bay, to keep it at a manageable level. And that helps you build endurance when it comes to those things. And you don't want to lose your senses. You don't want to become desensitized to things. You don't want to become incapable of having an emotional response because that's what makes us what we are. We want to react emotionally. And it feels good when you have a handle on it. You know, like since my mom's passing, I don't cry often. But when every time I do, it is it feels wonderful. It feels like the exact thing that I should be doing. And a part of me even wishes I could do it more. A part of me wishes that I, you know, did it daily. You know, not that I really want to cry every day, but it's, it's just one of those things where uh, when I do cry, it's, I don't feel like I'm at, I've lost control. It's almost like I, this is a good feeling because I feel raw and in touch with something that's important to me and that affects me deeply. It's not that out of control. Because, I mean, there's a difference. That guy, like, you know, it's been a long time since I've felt this way. But when you cry in response to... When you cry in response to an emotion... When, when crying is an emotional reaction, but you have no control. Not to say that you can stop crying or start crying on command. But when it's something that is in response to a situation that is far out of your control, and it's like a desperate cry. So when I cry right now... It, it's not desperate and it doesn't, I don't feel like I'm lacking any control. It's just simply how I'm feeling in that moment. And, uh, and, but if, if it does feel out of control, you know that you can endure it. You know, I, this, this one is about endurance, enduring something. And, and so it's when you're experiencing something painful, not giving in to the the suffering of it. You know, you experience the pain, but basically not get it giving in to the suffering. And it's important to know the distinction between pain and suffering, because pain is something that you can't escape. Unless you're a high-level mage, unless you're a, a wizard whose brain has just separated and become one with, you know, the invisible, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Unless you're a wizard whose brain has, has just become one with the universe, chances are you're going to feel pain. Chances are something is going to cause you physical or emotional pain, and you can't change that. Like if somebody jabs you with a needle, you're going to feel that. But the suffering is the response. The pain is the the external thing that you really can't control. You, yeah, you can avoid situations that could cause you pain, but when you're meeting a pain head-on, you can't possibly avoid it. And it's often the attempt to avoid pain that causes us suffering. It's us thrashing around when simply relaxing would lessen the effect that the pain has on us. 
So endurance, this is where endurance comes in. This is where knowing that you can endure pain. And of course, there are all kinds of situations. There's chronic pain. There's, you know, depression. There are things that cause you pain on a long-term basis, and that's something else. But, you know, there's definitely situations that are painful. And if you've been through them, you know that you can endure them, which is a sign that your endurance has already built up. Having experience. Endurance is experiencing something. And that's why I say that looking at things that piss you off, if you do that deliberately and you're aware of it, it's again using, you know. It, you know, If you know why you are using your phone to look at the news, knowing that it will probably piss you off. Because the nice thing about the news, the nice thing about current events is there's a little something for everybody. There's a little something for everybody that'll drive you crazy. You know, that's the nice thing about the news is it's not just, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a Republican Buddhist witch or a, a Democrat, uh, a Democrat. It doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter how independent you are. There's always going to be a little something for everybody to bring you down. But if you do that deliberately, if you use your phone very deliberately to look at things and you know why you're doing it, you know, I, I'm looking at this because I want to know what's going on in the world, but I also know that it's going to piss me off. And so you use that as an exercise, and you go, okay, but I'm also strengthening my ability to look at information that potentially pisses me off, and as a result, I'm going to have less of an emotional reaction to it. And in doing that, I'm also probably going to see it a lot clearer. I'm probably going to see it a lot more objectively. And so you can build endurance that way. You can build endurance by running a little farther each time you go running. And But you can also develop endurance long-term by saying, oh, I've been through this thing that was very difficult before. And it's it might be something that's not quite like that muscle. It's not like working on a muscle long enough so that it can endure a certain amount of tension or weight. It might be something that's as simple as having done something before and having and knowing that you've done it before gives you the endurance to go through it again or go through something similar. Um, the next one, we're on to the next one. There are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by removing. Similar to not paying attention, similar to restraint. But it's removing the things that you know are toxic, for one. Because I think some of these things apply to friendship, where I have certain friends who are prone to complaining. You know, they're prone to point out the negative, and I might be that person, too. I know that I have been that person. But part of that, you know, if you have a negative disposition, you can learn that, hey, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm complaining, I'm venting, although you can easily justify shitty behavior by being like, I'm just venting, I'm just telling it like it is, I'm just telling it like it is, you know, it's easy to do that, um, but sometimes with our, you know, our friendships, there's this idea, and it kind of goes along with the, you know, follow your bliss, pop spirituality, that's particularly popular, I feel like, with housewives, but it's this idea of, you know, remove negative people from your life. 
you need to get those negative people out of your life. You know, there's that idea. And I don't think that that's necessarily the answer because I find that certain people I know, they have a greater importance in my life that goes beyond those moments where they complain or where they're bitching. You know, it, it goes beyond that and they bring a greater good, but it can be difficult to see that in the moment. And so I say, don't just remove someone from your life because they are negative. I think a rule that I have is if someone attacks you, if someone is jabbing at you all the time, I think that's a good reason to take a step back and maybe walk away. Probably should. But if they're not addressing you, and that means they might talk shit behind your back. I mean, that's always the reality. If you're dealing with somebody who complains a lot or who bitches about people a lot, they're probably going to bitch about you too. And that's okay because it's not your business. It's really none of your business what someone says about you when you're not around. Yeah, if they're trying to destroy your life or your well-being or your livelihood, that's a little different. But if someone just complains about you behind your back or gossips about you, it's really none of your business. But, you know, being able to walk away, take a step back, you know, you can... You should address things like, is this person bringing their problems to me, or do they just need to talk about them? And, you know, are and, and, you know, for that matter, too, it's like our friends sometimes make the best therapists. I've never been to a therapist, so maybe therapists also make the best friends. No, I know that, that you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to develop a personal relationship with therapists. But anyway, this one, this abandoning this cause of sorrow is through removal. So it's removing the things from your life that you know will cause you sorrow. So you have to be honest with yourself. If somebody is in your life and they cause you more grief than, than benefit, well, it might be a sign that you need to remove them. It might be a sign that you need to break up with that significant other who causes you genuine sorrow. And I think you have to look at it too. Is, is it something that you're projecting onto them? Because sometimes we can look at somebody and see what they don't do and say and think of that as a problem. Oh, because this person doesn't do this thing that would make me happier, they're causing me sorrow. No, that's you causing yourself sorrow. But things that actually actively cause more sorrow, that bring you more grief, those are different. And those things should be removed. Things that cause you pain, that cause you suffering, uh, that, that bring you suffering as a result of pain, should probably be removed from your life, unless there is, unless you you know what it is, unless you're using it. Because the thing about having a friend who is prone to negative rants or whatever it is, who just always has problems, is that could be a test too. And I don't think you should treat all your you shouldn't go into your friendships and go, this is an exercise. Oh, I'm going to treat this friendship like a test where I'm testing my endurance to not give in to their negative bullshit. But again, I think you can say that to yourself and then it can become kind of a, a subconscious response where you no longer have to sit there listening to your friend rant and rave and say, oh, this is a test. This is a test. You no longer have to say that to yourself. You just do it. You just endure it. And... I think you should always see the greater good of a friendship or a relationship. And I would say the people who are in my life who are, you know, prone to 
ranting and raving. I would say the people who are currently in my life who do that, and I might, again, I might be that to somebody else. I very well might be that person to somebody else. I very well might be that person to myself. But you should, there should be a greater good if they're still in your life. You know, there should be a, a greater good to the whole situation. And, you know, you shouldn't just remove people from your life at the slightest sign of negativity. Because some of the pop spirituality that you hear kind of points you in that direction. And I don't feel that that's helpful. Maybe if you're so sensitive and so weak and so susceptible, that's important. But there are certain people in my life where it's like, I know that if they start ranting and raving, I'm probably going to start ranting and raving. And at some point, one of us has to, you know, put the brakes on it. Otherwise, we can just go deep on it and not feel any better, feel much worse. So it's important to know how to put the brakes on something. But just removing something entirely, and, and I mean, it plays out pretty obviously with substance abuse, where sometimes you just got to remove that thing from your life. No amount of moderation, no amount of discipline is going to give you a, a healthy relationship with a certain substance. So you just have to get rid of it. And I've had to do that myself. Whereas others, you know, like like marijuana, you know, it's like I... My days as as a stoner are far behind me, but at the same time, I'm not afraid of occasionally dabbling in it here and there as I see fit, whereas I'm not afraid of alcohol, because an important part of quitting drinking was to not be afraid of alcohol or drinkers, but at the same time, I also know that that's not a chemical I want to play with ever again, so I had to remove it. And so you can look at your friends like you would weed and booze. Is this friend more like weed, where I can kind of deal with the downsides of it? I can kind of deal with their downsides, and but I don't have to deal with it all the time, and I know why I'm dealing with it? Because that should be something you do. And I mean, something I had to learn with weed is I had to be like, hey, you know, I want to know why I'm doing this. Because when I was younger, I never thought about it. I just wanted to be high all day, every day. And I stopped being deliberate. And I also realized it's a slippery slope, where when I have dabbled with weed again, the first week, I'm like, oh, I'm very consciously and deliberately going to smoke this. And I know exactly what I'm going to do with it while I'm high. And then a week later, it's just like, let's wake up and smoke. Let's stay up until 4 a.m. smoking and eating. And you lose that discernment. But that said, weed's never been, it's never had such a corrupting influence on my life that I've had to remove it entirely. I've gone, I go, I can go a year without it. I can go any amount of time. I could go forever without it and not miss it. But at the same time, I don't think I need to remove it. Um, you know, is something a cancer? You know, remove it. Or is something just occasionally bad? You know, it's, it's, you, you learn what needs to be removed and what doesn't. So removal, that one's pretty obvious as a cause of sorrow. Sometimes, and I mean, and a, an effective technique, because actually one of the things it says here that should be worth reading says, what causes of sorrow should be abandoned by removing? Here, a person reflecting wisely does not tolerate, tolerate, does not tolerate 
an arisen thought of sensual desire. One abandons it, removes it, does away with it, and ends it. One does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will. One does not tolerate an arisen thought of cruelty. One does not tolerate an arisen evil or unwholesome states. One abandons them, releases them, does away with them, and ends them. While causes of sorrow, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not remove these thoughts, there is no taint, vexation, and fever in one who removes them. So I like that it's, that's an important thing that I would have missed out on talking about. I would have forgotten to mention it. But you know, when those thoughts arise within you, knowing how to remove those thoughts within yourself... And a really effective technique that I've learned is saying no. No is such a powerful word. And people have a hard time saying it out loud to other people. There are doormats, there are yes people who have a very difficult time saying no to another person's requests. But learning how to say no to yourself, I mean, that plays into restraint. It plays into not paying attention to things that you know will cause you sorrow. But it also plays into your own thoughts where sometimes I will think a negative thought about somebody and right when its roots develop and it starts to grow out of those roots, I say no. It's almost like a dog who's doing something bad. I mean, you are a dog. And sometimes I'll notice myself start to think something nasty and it might not even be an emotional response to something, it might just be almost like a, I, I want to say like a, like an experiment. Like I'll start to think, oh, what if this happened to this person? No. You just cut yourself off at the root and say no, and you can actually stop that thought from developing. Or even if you've already thought that thought, thought that thought, even if you've already thought that thought, that ill will, you can say no immediately afterward, and it effectively banishes that thought from your consciousness. That thought will not creep into your subconscious, that's for sure, if you banish it with no. And you think about occultists and chaos magic, and there's something they do, you know, a banishment ritual where before they conduct their magic, you know, those Republican chaos magicians, which actually we're getting kind of close to reality now, but... uh. Uh, but, you know, when a chaos magician does their little ritual, they do a, before they create a sigil, before they do what they do, they'll do a banishment ritual. And I don't, you know, I'm not into that stuff very much, so I don't really know all the details. But part of it is that you're banishing all of this negative influence so that your ritual can be pure. And that's what no does. <laughs> that's my banishment ritual, is it's just saying no. It's catching a thought early enough even if you've already thought that thought, you catch it early enough to where you can banish it away. And what is banishment? It is removal. When someone is banished from a village, they are removed from that village. When someone is banished from a tribe, they are removed from that tribe. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but they are causing enough of a problem. They are seen as enough of a cancer. It could be a friend who you realize isn't much of a friend and you have to banish them from your life but it could be a thought in your own head, and often that's the hardest thing to deal with. That's the hardest thing to say no to, because it's like, I thought it. If I thought it, how can I banish it? It's mine. But it's like, that's that. you have the most control. You have more control over your thoughts than you have of anything outside of you. So if you can't tell your own thoughts no, if you can't tell yourself no, well, start there. Start try doing it.
You got to do it. Fake it till you make it. Start telling yourself no, even if you don't mean it. Eventually, you don't even have to mean it. It's just like everything that melts into your subconscious. You no longer even have to mean it because it's so deeply in you that it's inherently meaningful. And you'll act it out even without realizing it. And you'll, because that's what will happen is you no longer, it's not like you spend all your day thinking nasty thoughts and saying, no, no, like some schizophrenic walking down the street just thinking thoughts going, no. Eventually, you won't even think those thoughts very often. Not to say you'll never stop thinking them, but you won't be continually thinking nasty thoughts and having to cut them off at the root. You'll just naturally, they'll naturally subside. It's like an immune system. I think we're getting, we're, yeah, we're getting down now to the last one. We're finally there. An hour and four minutes in, we're finally to the last one. And this is where you, you need things to become constructive. And it says, there are causes of sorrow that should be abandoned by developing. And I'm glad this is the last one. I'm glad this is the best, the, the, the best one. The, I don't want to say the best one, but I'm glad, I was trying to say last, and I said best. Last and best equals best. Um, but I'm glad this is the last one because, yeah, development is what happens when you've cleared the air of everything else. When you've cleared all the nasty and negative stuff, all those negative impulses, and you've learned how to make decisions to not do things, you have to learn how to make decisions to do things. And that's development. That is growth. And it's important that that's the last one because it should come after you've developed these other skills and these other tendencies. And that's building, you know, it's, it's creating the good things. Because the truth is, we can't all be completely neutral, gray souls. We are human beings. We do have to do things and think things. We do have lives that most of us have to do something with. And most of us aren't going to become monks. Most of us aren't going to devote ourselves completely to an ascetic lifestyle. And even monks are developing themselves. Even people who have gone as close as they can to being nothing in a human body still have to develop themselves. And it's learning how to be constructive. It's making the good decisions. It's making the right decisions, the things that will enrich your life. And not through just sensory pleasures, but things that that will actually give you a stronger foundation. And there's fitness, which I don't need to go into, there's practice, there's, you know, thinking thoughts that, you know, because, I mean, it's it's not like good is that elusive. You know, we don't have to get, you know, philosophy 101 about it and be like, what is good? What, it, well, what does good really mean anyway? I mean, people tell themselves that, I think, sometimes in order to avoid actually doing good. And on an intuitive level, if you clear all this other stuff away, I think what all of these other things like removal, not paying attention, what all of that kind of plays into is clearing the path for your intuition to work. And developing a healthy intuition, you know, by, by putting the right thoughts into your subconscious and aiding, not that your subconscious and your intuition are the same thing, but they operate very similarly. And uh, so, it, and it, you know, 
development, it plays into using, you know, the one about abandoning sorrow, abandoning, abandoning the causes of sorrow by using, by being very deliberate in what you use and why you are using it, what you are consuming and why you are consuming it. That plays into development, too, because you are using something for your own development. Uh, and so development means, you know, reading things that you know will add to that foundation and that will build upwards from there. It is upwards movement. It is ascendant. And your intuition will truly guide you in that direction. And, you know, what that development is, I, you know, I can't say what it is really. It's like you never, it's not like you really have at least in my case, I don't have some end goal in mind of where I want to go, which feels a lot more liberating for me and gives me a lot of relief to think all I have to focus on is building with what I have here right now. And I don't need to have that perfect ideal that I'm working for because I actually have it right now in some ways. I have this thing that I can work with and develop and I've learned techniques and skills for pushing those other things away. I've learned how to not pay attention to things that are going to cause me sorrow. I've learned how to restrain myself from those things. I've learned how to use things that will actually give me some basic comfort and alleviate some pain, even if it's just eating when I'm hungry. It's, you know... Development, I guess, development is really the culmination of all of those skills. It's what you do. It's the action that you take. It is when you learn to stop reacting to every little thing that goes on inside and outside of you, development is when you start to take deliberate action that you just know will benefit you, and, and in doing that, you benefit the world. You know, in, in a small way, you benefit the world when you develop yourself. And you also see it as, I mean, as the word itself implies, development is ongoing. Development is ongoing. And I guess I don't really want to get into specifics about development. Because I'm still figuring it out myself. I'm still figuring out what development is for myself. Um, but the, it's the actions you take when you've cleared the air. And that might be the best way to finish this. Just a little, an illustration, I guess an analogy or a metaphor, whatever it is. I, in the moment, I always forget what's what. It's a comparison. But a good way of illustrating this is, when you think about when there's a bad smell in a room. And one way of dealing with that is just to spray some Febreze, spray some air freshener. And that doesn't really make the room smell better. It masks the bad smell, but often you still know it's there. And even in your own, in, mentally, you know that you're still smelling those particles. And often, if it's a bad enough smell, it kind of merges with the air freshener. So you have this sort of chemical smell combined with an organic bad smell, and it doesn't really improve the situation. You know you're not smelling that straight-up bad smell anymore. But you, it's just this kind of hybrid, it's like artificial, it's just, you know that you're not smelling something pure. 
And that's, you know, one way we, I mean, and there's situations where you got to do that or you should do that, you know, even for your own peace of mind. Like if you have a girl coming over to your house and your bathroom smells terrible, you just did something in there. You did something horrible in your bathroom right before a girl comes over or any guest, you know, really any guest, because I've never really become comfortable with my body. (laughs) <laughs> my bodily functions, what I mean. I'm comfortable with my body. I'm not comfortable with my bodily functions, no matter who I'm dealing with. But, you know, especially if it's like a girl you want to impress, you know, something like that, she comes over to your house, it's like you you just did something horrible in the bathroom. Horrible. And, uh, you know, you gotta you spray some Febreze. And even though when she goes in the bathroom, she's not it's not going to be any mystery what that smell is. This oh it smells oh he sprayed Febreze in here. Even if she can't smell the organic horror that that Febreze is trying to mask, she still knows that you sprayed Febreze in here. And you only do that when you're trying to mask something. I mean, who's who just sprays Febreze for the hell of it? But anyway, you know, that's it's a quick fix, and it turns out it's not a fix at all. If you want a room to smell, if you want to clear the air in a room, you don't just spray Febreze to mask a terrible smell. You have to address the terrible smell. And sometimes that means taking the garbage out. Sometimes that means taking the trash out because there's something in your garbage can that smells bad. And when you remove that, it might smell for a little while longer, but eventually the air is going to clear up again. And, uh, you know, and, and too, with some smells, you can't take the garbage out. If you used, if, if you just did something horrible in the restroom, you know, there's not much you can do to actually get rid of that except wait. You just let the air settle. Gets back to that idea of just letting things settle. But the point is that you can't really take any action to actually get rid of the smell. You can't take any action to actually get rid of the smell. So what you... You can just wait, and you you can do things to not cultivate that smell or encourage more smells. But you just you either have to clear the air by taking the garbage out, by cleaning. You know, maybe you have to clean the, the counter. Maybe you spilled something. You, know, you got to clean. And then eventually, though, the air will clear. And... When the air clears, then you can focus on development. Do I want to smell other things? Since I'm not smelling anything right now, do I want to live in an environment where I never smell anything pleasant? You might buy some plants. You might get some scented candles. You might get some scented candles. You know, you might get something like that. You might, there might be certain things that produce certain smells, flowers, you cook something you want to eat. It makes an attractive smell. You, you smell something good in your house. Maybe you like perfume. Maybe you, maybe you do just like spraying Febreze for the hell of it, not to cover things up, but just Febreze for Febreze's sake. And that's a form of development. You're developing the sense in your home. But so often development is this way of covering up things. So often our attempts to, cu- to develop ourselves are really just a way to hide our insecurities or deny things about ourselves or deny things about who we are in the world. They're soft lies in many cases, which I think is why you have to first clear that air. It's why you have to first take that garbage out. 
and I believe some of the you know some of what I just read from that passage, uh, the abandoning of sorrow. I think if you're trying to abandon sorrow, there does have to be a process of removal of restraint. These things that almost seem negative because they involve either not doing something or getting rid of something. But it's sort of like taking the garbage out. It's like flushing the toilet. And in some cases, it's just letting the air settle, letting the air do what it does. But then once that has happened, once you've been through that process and you've learned how to do that, then you can focus on cultivating and developing things that are pleasant or good. And most people will agree, not everybody has the same taste in perfume. I personally don't like much of any of it. But there are certain scents that most people will agree are pleasant, and there are, most, there are many scents that most people will agree are, are unpleasant. And on an intuitive level, you know, you know what's good for your own development, but you'll know especially what's good for your, you'll especially know what's good for your own development once you've cleared that air, once you've taken that stuff out that is causing some kind of lingering smell, once you've had patience and restraint. So, you know, I, I, hopefully these ideas are helpful. They might be obvious. If these ideas are all very obvious to you, well, you're already doing great, you know? And, and so I can't add anything or take anything away. If you're already doing great, nothing that I say or that this passage I read says can add or take away because only you can know if you're doing the right thing. And the right thing is often what alleviates sorrow. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave this golden land to me and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free